0: This month we're talking, Mark and I are talking about relationships. We focus on the topic of marriage um, because it's it's really the highest form of human relationship. It's it's relationship on steroids, right? Marriage contains the dynamics of all other kinds of relationships, like friendship, which is so vital and important, is contained within marriage. Business partnership (laughs) is contained within marriage, even partners in crime, like having children, (laughs) is contained within marriage. Uh, So even if you're not married or never going to be married, Jesus was never married, Paul was never married, there's lots of folks that are not married, will not be married, and it doesn't mean that they're weird. right? But even if you're not, you know people that are, and the dynamics of what make a marriage work will make all relationships work. It is the most intimate, the most open, kind of the, the crown of creation that God had in mind to display what he had purposed for humankind I think it's interesting to note when you open the, Genesis, uh, open the book of Genesis and you begin to read the story that we are all a part of it, it opens up and, and God talks about how he's creating everything and, and as he creates he steps back each of the moments each of the events that occur and he says this is good And toward the end of Genesis 1, he actually says back as things are flowing together. And he says, this is not only good, it is very good. And then as we go into Genesis 2, it sort of drills into the story a little deeper. And we get a little more insight into what actually has taken place. And we pick up the narrative in Genesis 2 and verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man, Adam. This is before Eve was created according to the story. And put him in the garden of Eden, watch, to work it. And to take care of it. It's interesting to note that work came into the world before sin. In other words, your job isn't the result of the fall of humankind. (laughs) God actually loves work. It's part of a purpose for us. And in eternity future, we'll actually work. We'll have jobs. We'll have things to do. It won't be the kind of work that was poisoned by sin where it causes sweat to the brow and it causes alienation and heartache and competition and and one-upping and blaming and none of that will be present we get to redeem work in fact i would suggest here before eternity begins one of the beautiful things about being a christ follower is we get to redeem work right so adam was to take care of it work the garden and the lord commanded the man saying you can eat from anything you see around or any tree But don't eat from that tree right there. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let your good and evil be in me. Let me tell you what's right. Let me tell you what's wrong. Uh, But if you eat of that tree and try to figure it out on your own, determine your own right and wrong, it's going to mess with you. You're, You're going to die. And he says, then the Lord God said, watch this. It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, what's interesting about this theologically, it creates a conundrum. A conundrum is an unsolvable riddle that no matter how you run at it, you can't you can't take the opaqueness out. There's always questions that linger. And what the conundrum is, is how in the world? This is before sin. This is before the fall, which is the which is the worm that crawled itself into the human condition, right? And make things bad, make things ungood. So before the fall, God says. This is not good. And and the problem is, well, how is that possible? How can God create a situation that's not good when he's only good? It's a problem. But he goes on to say, it's not good. I will make a helper suitable for him. I'm going to make someone in his life. Now, don't let that word helper throw you. This is not God making Eve so that uh, Adam has someone that can do his dirty work. It really isn't. It isn't. In fact, the word helper here is the Hebrew word, E-X-E-R, and it's only used 17 times in the Bible. 14 of the 17 times it's used in reference to a woman, or excuse me, in reference to the Holy Spirit or God helping us. He's a very present help in time of need is where that word is used as an example. In other words, the idea here is that God helps us not because he's our gopher, not because he's our slave, but because he has the capacity to help us. God was saying, I'm going to make someone, Adam, and I'm going to bring them into your life who has the capacity to make you a better man. It's not good for you to be alone. What's interesting is, certainly God could have created Adam to only need God. He is the God who's more than enough. Certainly he could have been enough. And yet God makes Adam to need more than God. We're in, a, we're in a world of, 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 particularly our culture and American culture, is such an individualized world. We define ourselves by our separation and ability. Strength means if you're really a strong person, if you're really a complete person, you don't need anybody. Just you and Jesus, right? And that spills even into our faith. We don't even see the need for corporateness in our faith. We're just a bunch of people that gather together and read the Bible together walk away getting what we can get out of it. Not understanding, wait a minute, We're not just called to love God. We're not just called to be connected with God. We're actually called to connect with one another. That life is as corporate as it is individual. That faith is as corporate as it is individual. And So God creates this being, this woman, brings him to the man. And he says, this, this is what I imagined. That, that you would need more than just God. That you would need others. This is again before sin. This is by God's design. And his solution of this ungoodness is to create one, really the big daddy of all close relationships. Marriage. marriage. Right. <laughs> that was an old movie quote that I alluded to there that wasn't very funny except in my own mind. <laughs> marriage. Simply and elegantly stated in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25 it says the man and the woman were both naked and they felt no shame. I mean here's the crown of creation. Here's, here's God creating everything and at the very top of it the apex of it he says this is what I want. This man, this woman together and they're naked and they feel no shame. It's this idea that, that God imagined relationships that had intimacy. In other words Where you could be known. And that you could know. Where you could feel like you didn't have to hide. Or you you felt like... Where you could be vulnerable and open. Right? That there's something about that kind of relationship. That threatens darkness. It wasn't until after the fall that the trouble started in human relationships, where all of a sudden embarrassment, shame, fear, cover-up begins to emerge. And we pick it up in Genesis 3, 7. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. They begin to hide. They begin to cover. And what's interesting is, is what they covered. <laughs> I mean, their hands were involved in the... The fall. Their hands were involved in the sin, but they didn't make gloves. They didn't cover up their hands. Their mouth was explicitly involved in the sin, but they didn't cover their mouths. What they covered were the parts of them that were different from each other. Sin makes you afraid of being known, it makes you want to hide. It makes you want to cover up because you're not sure if it's okay to be different. And when differences are caught, sin makes someone think, ah, I, can, I can manipulate you because look at you, look at you, you're different than me, which means you're weird. And leadership begins to be defined by cover up and leadership begins to be defined by controlling others. Never got his dream. And cover up sets us up for the blame game. And we read it in picking up in verse eight of this same text. The man and his wife they hear the sound of the Lord, and he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees. The Lord calls, "Where are you?" As though he as though he didn't know. And the man answered. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And God said, who who told you this is a bad thing, this naked thing? Have you eaten from, have you begin to figure out good and evil on your own? Have you been thinking about what's right and wrong? Did you go to the tree that lets you figure it out instead of being involved with me to figure that out? And watch what he says. The man said, "That that that woman, you gave me. She gave it to me, and I ate it." See what he's saying is, said, don't look at me. Nothing to see here. Look, that woman you gave me blame. So the Lord says to the woman, "What is this that you have done?" And she goes, "The the devil made me do it. Right? The serpent deceived me." See what's what's happening here. Is that human relationships that were intended to be intimate and open and understanding. Where I get to know you, you get to know me, we get to know each other. is trashed. And it changes the whole context of how relationships work. What's interesting in this is another sidebar to this whole idea. Is that to recognize that Satan, the Satan, he's really the Satan. It's like a title, it's not really his name. The Satan is like the president. His name is Lucifer. The Satan never shows up. He's the accuser. Never shows up until after there was this kind of human relationship. He doesn't show up when there's just God and Adam in the garden. He shows up after there's this kind of intimate, open, vulnerable, intense relationship. That he shows up to deceive. There's something about marriage. Something about friendship. Something about part. Something about community that advances God's cause in the world and makes it beautiful. So the enemy flashes against that. And so what we're seeing here is that it's obvious from the Genesis narrative that God values human interaction. The most intense of these being marriage he didn't just set up Adam and Eve. He didn't create them and bring them together and set them up as sort of the this is where I'm at, this is where I'm going for. I want Adam and Eve to be CEOs of global enterprises. No. He didn't set them up to be, you know, the, the great pastors of the earth, the great leaders of the planet. He he sets them up and he says, here's what you are. You, Adam, your husband. Eve, your wife. Adam, Adam, your dad. Eve, your mom. (laughs) In other words, God thinks this is sweet. And interestingly, what this is telling us is that God's highest dream in the earth finds its root in the home. God calls himself father not CEO of Intergalactic Ministries. (laughs) He calls us children, not employees or slaves. He calls the church a bride. The future that we're going to walk into, eternity future, it holds our eternal home, not an eternal office, the glory office. The church herself, as much as God loves her, the church herself cannot be any better than the homes that make her up. What I'm saying to you is that God has placed great value on the home. That means it matters. Marriage for God is sacramental. It means it's something more than just two people trying to be happy. It's like when we do communion at the end of the service. We're going to take out that wafer. We're going to take out that little cup, tiny little cup, just to tease you you know that when you partake of that wafer partake of that cup you're not there to judge the wine this isn't a taste test nor are you there saying you know I've had better bread this tastes like it was cooked around the renaissance that's not what you're doing you take that bread it's irrelevant what it tastes like what's relevant is this is more than this this is I'm stepping into a larger story. I'm stepping into this this notion, my place in history, that I'm I'm partaking of someone who has has died for me, broken his body for me so that wholeness can come into the world. I'm taking this cup and I'm drinking it. It it means that what has happened here has been, blood has been shed. It has cost God something to be involved with my life. So we take the communion. It is so much more than it. It is so much more. Then what we see, what God is saying starting out is that marriage is more than two people trying to be happy. That when you step into a marriage, you're stepping into a dream. You're stepping into an idea. You're stepping into something bigger than you. That you're, and Paul even said it, he said, when a husband looks at his wife in this way, and when a wife looks at her husband in this way, he says it's, even when they have physical intimacy, Paul says. He said it's, it's, it's mysterious. It's talking about Christ and the church so that when you look at your marriage when you walk around as a man or walk around as a woman it isn't just about you getting your needs met or you being happy it's about you saying oh my gosh by by being married I'm stepping into building God's kingdom participating in the culture making it stronger making this world lighter because we're the light of the world making this world saltier where it prevents rot and makes things tastier when you enter your marriage rightly you're making the world better not just your happiness. Say, That's the way. That's, it's like whoa, whoa. If you were voted in to be a representative of this city or this state or our government, my guess is as a Christian you'd walk into those places realizing you weren't just voted in so you can be happy. That you're in there because you're, you're representing more than yourself. This is the call to marriage. This is the call to friendship. Friendship. It's that we come in with this sense of something sacred, this sense that there's something more than what we see, that there's grace communicated. This is sacramental, huh? Now, there's lots of enemies to marriage out there. Uh, lots of folks get shipwrecked. Um, there's grace for people who get shipwrecked. I mean, <laughs> how many of you ever been an idiot, just generally? Yes. And I've been an idiot generally, you've been an idiot generally. The good news is God loves idiots. So you can idiot most of your life. and God, You can idiot till the last breath, and God loves idiots till the last breath. But being less idiotic is better. If you've had nothing but relational trouble, God doesn't love you less. God loves you. He's for you. He wants to help us. But, but there is a way to stop being so silly, to, be, to not be so selfish, to actually redeem relationships, to bring grace. Where there's nothing but trouble. There's a way to do that. And there, there's secrets. And, and nobody goes to the altar. I tell you, I've been doing this for 30 years pastoring. I've married scads of couples. I've never run into a couple that as they're coming to the altar, they're thinking, oh, our lives are going to be mediocre at best. <laughs> Nobody's thinking that. Nobody's thinking, and you know what? I think given seven years, we're going to hate each other's guts and get a divorce. <laughs> Nobody's thinking that. Everybody comes with hope. That's why they do their vows. They're imagining They're imagining a future that is better together than one that is apart. And so they vow into that future. The problem is hope gets disappointed. But the scripture says hope doesn't have to get disappointed. It says hope does not have to disappoint, Paul says in Romans 5. Hope does not have to disappoint because the love of God that's been shed abroad in our hearts In other words, we've got something bigger that can help us with relationships. That's why Jesus said in the most intimate relationship of marriage, he says, what God has joined together, man man doesn't put asunder. If you let God in it, man can't separate it. If you let God glue it, if you let God glue it, there's sticky stuff that God can bring to bear that's bigger than human love. And you do it not because you want to be happy. You do it because it's right. And then you get to be happy. Not always because everything's right or everything's working. It's that there's no place like being in a place of peace in your soul. And peace comes from doing right. Okay. Uh, nobody comes to the altar wanting to get a divorce. What happens? <laughs> Simply, lots of bad things happen. Little bad things. There's sometimes big things, but most of it's little, 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 little things that over time start stuffing you up and then your heart grows cold. A friend of mine has uh, had a, uh, a dryer. His wife said, Honey, my dryer, the dryer went dead. So he went and checked the element, thinking, well, maybe the element burned out wasn't the element. So he, he knew he had to check the, uh, the vent. Because if the vent gets stuffed up, the dryer stops working because of of, um, safety uh, protocol. And so he tried to check the vents, couldn't see anything. Well, he dug deeper into the vent and he ran into something. So he reached up in there with a stick and he started pulling it. It took him a while to pull it out. He said, I pulled out. He said, Ed, I pulled out of that vent a complete bird's nest with eggs. Somebody had moved into their house. Now, he told me, he said, it wasn't like the bird brought that in all at once. Where, you know, they're going, bring it in. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the day before and they have a, pr- no, this problem was building over time. That little bird found that little place and thought, ooh, this make a nice house. So she flew out and grabbed a little twig, brought it in, flew back out, grabbed a little mud, brought it in, flew back out, grabbed a little piece of styrofoam, brought it back in, flew back out, grabbed another twig, brought it back in. Flew back out, brought some more stuff. And over time, she built herself a little house, and she got settled in there, had eggs, dryer stops. (laughs) The reality is, most marriages can... Marriage can only be safe if you work on the little bits of pieces of twig, mud, and styrofoam that come into your vent. You've got to pay attention to the little stuff. You can't not pay attention to the little stuff. Or what will happen is you may have some heart, you know, passion toward each other, but it'll just stop. And you wonder, what's wrong? Nothing's working. That's because you're all plugged up. (laughs) Ephesians 4, this is why Paul says this. He says, in your anger, it's okay to be angry, but in your anger, do not what? Do not sin. Well, you could talk a, a bunch about how anger turns into sin, right? But the way, what Paul specifically addressed, one of the aspects of sin that anger blossoms into, that Paul specifically addresses here, is don't get angry in sin, the sin being letting the sun go down while you're still angry. What's he saying? And then he said, and do not let give the devil a foothold. See, we actually give the devil a foothold in our lives when we get mad and we don't deal with it. The little twig comes in, we don't deal with it. Little piece of garbage comes in, we don't deal with it little mud, we don't deal with it. You know, we don't want to mess anything up, we just don't want to deal with it. And we go to sleep mad. Listen, though you talk to people that have good marriages, you'll find out that the first few years of their marriage, they had very little sleep because they kept trying to get rid of the anger before they fell asleep. You have to deal with your anger. You have to deal with your stuff. You have to little bits at a time be honest. Not only do you have to deal with your little bits of stuff that, you, that make you upset, you have to realize that good marriages are built little bits at a time. That's why it's wonderful to hear it for us to talk about. All this month, you're all going to hear little bits of ideas about what to do in a relationship. Snag those puppies. Start putting them together. Start practicing them. And over time, little bits of strength will pour into your lives. Now, I want to give you just a couple little bits, probably one. I had five, but that was too ambitious a project <laughs> for Edwin the Blatherer. Um, so I think I'll give you one. <laughs> um, something that can really help you survive your marriage. And these things that you'll hear all month long, these are these are things that, that help marriages get through rough patches and build strength. I mean... Uh, Gail and I have been married for 34 years and been through the good, the occasional bad, a big chunk of ugly for those of you that know our story. And yet we survive and thrive because of these little ideas that build strength and can help you get through whatever life throws at you. And the, the, the first one is just, I've already alluded to it, is just the notion of valuing marriage. Everybody say, value marriage. I'm talking before you, you have to value your marriage and you have to value your spouse. But before you even do it, you need to value marriage. You need to recognize it's something bigger than you. You're stepping into a calling. You're stepping into God's highest crown of creation. You're stepping into what he imagined. You need to think, my marriage, this relationship is important. Why? Because your heart always moves toward the things you value. Here's a secret. I'm telling you, this is a great secret. Your heart shouldn't be the thing you just follow. The reality is your heart follows what you pay attention to. So if your heart's in a weird place, it's because you're attending to weird things. That's why sin has such temptation. What is temptation? It's, it's, it's something to try to get your attention. Why? Because if something gets your attention, it has your heart. This is what Jesus said. This is his uh, statement in Matthew 6:21. For where your treasure is, for what you treasure, for what catches your attention, it's your treasure. For whatever you attend to, there your heart will be. This is one of the reasons why, when the Gospels preached, sometimes in foreign places, historically, it was always seemed to be associated with phenomenal, you know, things that would happen—miraculous kind of things. Why? Miracles get people's attention, and if, if God can get our attention, He has a shot at our heart. Your heart follows your attention. That's why we need to attend to our marriages and attend to each other. We just need to pay attention. Many marriages, I would suggest all marriages die simply because they have their attention in the wrong place. This is what I love about Mark's Laugh Your Way to a Better Marriage events. What I love about this initiative, and I love that we are part of that. You know, it makes him gone a lot, but it's wonderful to be a part of that. Why? Because somehow, this, you, you go to those events here walk in these couples that are kind of estranged to each other. They're hacked. You know, there's there these big nests with all kinds of eggs in between them. Right? They're just not connecting. They're not, they're not showing any public display of affection. No PDA. And they sit down. Mark starts talking. They start laughing. They relate to something and they look at each other. ha, ha. Ha, 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 ha. Ha, 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 ha. See, all of a sudden all this PDA starts happening, why? They they, they reignite, they just, you know, what is it? What is the magic there? They just actually paid attention to their marriage and each other. See, I'm I'm telling you, your heart will follow what you attend to. You have control of your heart. I used to go to the Lord, "My my heart is cold. Why? Fix my heart. See, we want, Americans particularly, we think we have to have integrity. We have to follow our heart and my heart is cold. I've just got to be honest. I've got to have integrity. My heart is cold. I hate you now. Let's be honest about it. No, the reality is your attention's been wrong, which has led you to a cold heart. You have something to say about what ignites you. That's why the scripture says, attend to my word. That's why the scripture says, seek me. Why? Oh, God's saying, if you give me a little attention, I'll I'll mess with you. This is why dating should never stop. Because in a date, you can attend to each other. You don't spend a lot of money. But I mean, even if it's a date over coffee. And you just sit down and listen to, to each other's boring, mundane lives. Tell me more. Why? Just like, this is why? This is why you should, you should do stuff like look at each other. I double dog dare you to look at each other more. You know when you're going through the house and there he's walking through the house and you're looking at him and the first impulse is, Lord, I would love to kill him and tell, him, tell you that he died. <laughs> I hate him just a little bit right now because I know his underwear is on. You know, whatever it is. I mean, you may feel this ick and all this, but if you just keep looking at him in spite of the ick, push it all out. Or you look at her, you go to the mall, and you're doing something, she's doing something, you know, go sneak around the clothes and just peek at her. I am telling you, try it, try it. I'll give you your money back. (laughs) Something about attention makes your liver quiver. You'll start to reignite it. This this is why you should do things like having touch that's non-sexual. Like holding hands. I mean, if the only time you touch your spouse is you're heading toward the bedroom, they're going to start resenting that. Right? But if you, in your heart, if you can just hold somebody's hand and just think, I'm holding her hand, I'm holding his hand. Or just, whatever you do, scratch the head, whatever you do. Right? If you just attend to, I'm telling you, Jesus is telling us, this will transform your home. The law of attention. A little thing. Now, I need to shut up with this. There are three really powerful threats to doing this. One is, we tend to own each other. When you own something, what you own tends to disappear. It's J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings series where he talks about this ring. If you ever own it, if you ever own it, things start to disappear. We do that with people. We tend to own them. When we're dating, we look at each other, we celebrate, we attend, we call. Say, you just call your spouse. You, know, you just whatever, just to attend to them. Uh, uh, and, and when we we start out that way, but after a while, we go down and we put the rings on each other, and it's almost like we just disappear. The person disappears. We own them. We do that with stuff. Some of you probably haven't bought a new car in a while. Don't even think about a new car much. But if we went today and I took you to a new car showroom and I brought you in that showroom where cars look different in a showroom than on the road. they're, They're amazing. They're shiny. They sing to you. Here I am, look at me, come here, come here, come here. And you come over to me. you open that car. You know how it opens when it's in a showroom? I don't know if they pull the, they change the atmospheric pressure or something, but it opens up like a spaceship. (laughs) And you get in it and you shut the door and you realize there's no old baby bottles in the back seat filling your nostrils. (laughs) Curdled milk. But instead, it's that fresh leather and that newness. And you put your hand on it and that thing's saying, Take me home. I love you. And you're just going, you're just something deep in your spirit. You start thinking, oh, I feel it. I feel it. It's God's will for me to buy this car. (laughs) Because God gives you the desires of your heart. Right? If you do buy the thing and you sign the paperwork and you're driving down the road, I mean, that first two or three weeks you have that car, it is so big. You step outside and look at it. You jump in and you're just, you're just like a little thing in there. And it's this car and it's driving and you're thinking, I wonder, oh, I'm driving by the baton. I wonder if they notice my new car. It's here. The car, the car, the car. I'm here. Says the car. It's just wonderful. But after a few weeks, it stops grabbing you. It loses its power. And by the time you make your first payment, And you start to own it. It starts to disappear. And someone will come up to you maybe six months into this thing when it doesn't grab you anymore. And they'll say, wow, that is a sweet ride. And you can kind of go, yeah. And you kind of remember how it used to grab you, how it used to have you, how it used to sing to you. But it hasn't sung for a while because it's gone. It's just a dream, a memory. See? See? We do this to our spouses. And if you let that happen, if you don't think, no, I need to chase them for the rest of my lives, you'll get a nest in your life. Second thing about this that that causes us not to celebrate each other and attend to each other is unresolved offense. Listen, we tick each other off. Next time I'm talking with you, I'm going to talk about fighting, fair fighting, good fighting. There is good fighting and bad fighting. So we're going to talk about fighting. You have to resolve things. There is no intimacy apart from fighting. Now, you may not fight by yelling, nothing like that. It may just be you just have to understand the issues and make sure your point is understood. You need to have understanding for there to be intimacy, which means fighting. But if you're not careful, you will get offended because the person thinks different than you do. And you won't bring it up. And so you'll go to bed that night and let fall into your anger. Sleep into your anger. And then you have this unresolved issue. And then the next morning you don't understand why you don't feel as close. Uh, there's this guy who used to work for me in Marshfield at the church there. And he, he came and had a, made an appointment with me and sat down. he said, brother, he said, I just need to ask you a question. I said, what's up, man? He said, why have you lost the anointing? Now what he meant was, you know, when I used to preach to him, it would help him. And, and he felt like God was speaking to him. But, but all of a sudden in the last few weeks... He doesn't feel like God's speaking to him anymore. And so in my mind, my my mind was going, well, I thought I've been doing pretty good the last couple of weeks, right? You know, in my mind. So I'm getting a little defensive in my mind. But I heard, and I think it was the Holy Spirit, just inside myself, I heard this thought, you've offended him. I I kind of stopped mid-sentence and I said, have I offended you in some way? He looked on the ground. I pried into it a little bit. Sure enough, something had happened that he understood this way. When I explained my side of the situation, he went, oh, and all of a sudden I got anointed again. <laughs> See, if you're offended, it causes you to not want to give anything. Unforgiveness means you can't give. You're in ungiving. Forgiveness is for giving. Forgiving. If Lathan has done something to offend me, and I'm offended, I'm in unforgiveness. I can't give him a conversation. I can't give him my eyes. I can't give him my ears. I can't give him anything. I'm in ungiving. And so I get cold, right? This is what happens in relationships. We don't process stuff. We get in an ungiving. And the Bible says that that's the bait of Satan. Or that It doesn't say it explicitly. What it says is you give room for Satan when you do it this way, which is bait for Satan. And then the last thing that happens that keeps you from valuing and celebrating and paying attention to your spouse is inappropriate connections. Let let me be honest with you. There are all kinds of people in the world who you'll feel an affinity for besides the friends you currently have or the spouse you currently have. And you have to be careful. You're in the marketplace, you're in the workplace, wherever you are, in community, in church. You start with people and you'll find some people really easy to talk to. Or something similar, you'll laugh. If it's between same sex couples, okay. Uh, if it's between opposite sex situation, you need to watch out. There, because if you're not careful, you'll look forward to the next time you get to spend time with that person. All of a sudden that person will start to capture your attention. And if you start feeling a pull to pay attention, you had better embrace an inappropriate or an appropriate rudeness. There is an appropriate rudeness between the opposite sexes. Where you're nice, you're sweet, but if it goes a particular direction, you put the wall up. Just Oh, change the subject, change it, get out of the situation, whatever you do. Just be appropriately rude. Because if you don't, your heart will start going there and you'll start finding out your heart will not only go somewhere, it leaves somewhere. You start attending to someone else and being fascinated about a relationship, getting into a flirting relationship, and what will happen is your heart will leave the connection you currently have. And then you'll feel like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I didn't intend for this to happen. Yeah, but you set yourself up for it. Because you didn't remember the simple law of attention. Your heart goes what you pay attention to. I was talking to a counselor last fall. We were having lunch. He looked at me and said, you want to know something really, really disturbing yet fascinating? I said, what? He said, in the last six months of my practice, he said, most marriages that are in trouble or have had full-blown-out affairs... He said, I bet you it's three out of four that are because of Facebook. Facebook? He said, Yeah. He said, What's happening is these couples that have been married for years, husbands, wives, they're getting on, and old high school buddies, old college acquaintances, talking to them. Well, where are you at? Da da da. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, you know, I'm doing okay. Well, I'm kind of going through a hard time with my marriage. Oh, yeah. Sometimes it isn't what it was, felt like it could have been. And they're married five, ten years, twelve years, and then they start talking. Maybe the one says the other, you know, I always, I always thought you were kind of cute, or I always thought about asking you, yeah, but I just didn't have the courage. No way. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, the wife or the husband, you know, they, they do what they have to do, be with the kids, I have to be with the kids, but secretly they're thinking, I can't wait to go back online, maybe, maybe she's responding to me, I can't wait to go back online, maybe he said something, maybe, he's, maybe he posted on something, I'm like, whoa. And then your heart's gone astray. And then you look at your husband or you look at your wife and you say, Man, I gotta be honest. You know, I wanna have a I wanna be a person of integrity. I gotta be honest. I just don't have it anymore. I just don't love, I just don't love you anymore. I wanna be honest with my heart. See, we actually in American culture value being honest with your heart. The Bible never says be honest with your heart. It means it says be honest about your heart. Because the heart follows something. Let's close with this verse. It says Above all else, follow your heart. Above all else, be honest about your heart. Somebody says? Above all else, what? Guard your heart, because out of it is the wellspring of life. Above all else. This is more important than your job. Everybody say, above all else. Above how much? All else. What? Guard your heart. Why? Because, honey, your heart is a freak. <laughs> your heart is whacked. It will run to whatever. You can be attending to one thing, just kind of go. oh, there's, oh, there's, oh, there's. You're just, you're doing okay. You go shopping, and you know, oh, you're lost there for hours, loving everything. There's nothing wrong with that, but you have to be aware. <laughs> you're a freak. And this is why we say, God, help me see rightly. Help me attend to the right things. That's where there's safety. Catch you next time.